Welcome to the Homeland Heroes Salute, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. We are your hosts, Bill Taub and Dave Tilly. I'm uh, Dave Tilly, and I'm here with uh, Phil Taub hosting Homeland Heroes Salute. And uh, this this podcast, we are honored to be joined by Dave Kenny, a uh, very distinguished veteran who has also, uh, since his time of service, been very active in our Granite State Veterans community. And we're very excited and uh, happy to have you here with us, Dave. Oh, it's uh, great to be here, Dave. I appreciate the uh, the opportunity. Thank you. Now, Dave, tell me a little bit about um, your service. We've known each other, uh, gosh, a lot of years. Yeah, uh, helping veterans in the Granite State. But um, what what got you uh, interested in joining the service? Could you talk a little bit about about what motivated you there? Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I was a uh, I was a fifties and sixties baby. So, you know, when I grew up during the Vietnam War, and and um, basically my my uh, family uh, all served. My father was eleventh Airborne in World War Two. Um, all of his brothers served, and uh, you know, service was a part of our family. But um, when I left high school, uh, I did two years of college, and <clears throat> truthfully, got a little uh, a little bored with it. Um, and, um, one day while I was at work and went down to talk to a bunch of recruiters and, uh, the Navy intrigued me the most. So I signed on in, uh, 1975 and, um, you know, went to, um, Orlando for my basic training and, uh, went to California for, uh, my subsequent schooling in, uh, communications and, uh, radio communications and satellite, um, and um, and Morse code, um, not something that's done a lot today. But uh, back in those days, uh, we were all required to copy it um, as part of the fleet operations. So um, every fifth individual that was selected for radio school was uh, was picked for uh, <coughs> code deciphering, shall we say, in Morse code school. So that was an additional two weeks uh, out in uh, uh, sunny California before I was deployed to the fleet. And, um, <laughs> you know, interesting story there was, was um, I, I learned my first lesson about how the Navy thinks um, when leaving my, my basic school and uh, they give you a dream sheet and basically say here, uh, fill out the top three places that you would like to go and get stationed when you leave here. So, <clears throat> you know, I was on the West coast. I loved it out there. And um, mm-hmm. You know, I love in California. And so I, I picked every ship I could think of, uh, every duty station that I could think of on the West Coast and um, pretty much thought that out of all those choices, I'd, I'd be a shoe in for one of them. And then my orders came in and I was detailed to an aircraft carrier on the East Coast. <laughs> that was uh, that was actually not even uh, in port at the time. So um, I had to travel uh, cross country, and then from there, um, head over to the other side of the pond. And I, I met the ship, and uh, when she was deployed in the Med for a first round of what would be three, four deployments um, overseas, uh, six to nine months long, and it was uh, it was a interesting adventure to say the least. Um, so you know, I did that as part of my active duty, and then um, when I transitioned into the reserve uh, reserve component in uh, the eighties. 
Um, I got assigned to a bunch of different units, uh, starting with um, MIUW and um, uh, Navy Seabees, um, an old unit called Navalex, which was uh, Naval Electronics and uh, Warfare. Um, so I made the transition. I had Cruiser Destroy Group 2 out of uh, uh, South Carolina for a while. And, and uh, you know, so there was a lot of interesting duty uh, stations. And um, during that time, um, I decided to finish my schooling, got my engineering degree in Northeastern, and uh, then applied for a commission shortly thereafter. And I was uh, picked up for a commission in 1990. Um, I commissioned on Old Ironsides. Um, that's wow. where it raised my hand. And, um, and ironically, it was in February. So it was bitter cold, just like it is today. And um, so that's that started my my second half of my career, essentially, as a, as a naval officer. So I was commissioned as a surface warfare officer. And from there, I spent some time uh, in quite a few years in military sealift command uh, on the blue and gold stackers uh, doing um, all sorts of tra uh, travel in, in the northeast and portion of Europe, uh, the Mediterranean, um, some portions of the Middle East and Northern Africa. So uh, you made the rounds for a while. And, and uh, you know, it really, it really was a, uh, an experience and one that the Navy, I think, uh, lived up to their reputation on, which was basically to, you know, <laughs> sign up and see the world. And, uh, and I can't say I was disappointed. It's, uh, it's been quite an experience. Well, that's, a, that's quite an adventure. I mean, um, leaving college after a couple of years going right in enlisting and being out and out on the beautiful west coast and then so most of your service then afterwards was east coast and, and basically uh you did 15 years is that right enlisted and then and then uh off to the officer corps that's correct yeah it was um yeah 15 years enlisted and then um yeah joined the uh, as my chief used to say the dark side um yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, I commissioned as a, as an LDO Mustang. So, um, as you, you, every service has their, I guess their own term, uh, for, uh, an enlisted person who, uh, transitions into the officer corps, but, uh, the Navy makes a, a very big tradition of it, um, you know, with the Mustang Corps. And so it's a very small group. Um, within the Navy fleet, but, um, you know, the LDO Corps is really designed to be, uh, you know, more or less technical specialists uh, and specialists within the wardroom. So, you know, it's one of those things where uh, in the beginning of the LDO program, uh, you were not allowed to command uh, command a ship uh, or a ship of the line because you were considered uh, to be a specialist in your particular field or in your particular trade. Um, so your training pipeline was different. Um, you didn't do the normal things that a general officer typically did in their uh, in their particular um, you know career path. So um, LDOs were a little bit different, and uh, but that's that's all changed. And and of course now um, LDOs have been known to command uh, some of the smaller vessels and stuff like that. So the Navy's changing, and I think a lot of it has to do with um, you know the amount of people that are that are out there in the fleet right now and. And uh, the fleet is not as large as it used to be. Um, you know, when President Reagan came mm -hmm. in, of course, he wanted to do a, a 600 ship Navy. Um, he didn't really get that close, but we did have a sizable fleet in those years. And so it took a lot of people to man it. And uh, so we were very busy in the 80s. I can tell you that. Um, so it was uh, it was quite an adventure. What was your um, 
out of, out of all your posts, I mean, the great thing about the Navy is you're on the ocean. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was Army. I'm Kansas. You know, <laughs> you, you, you've got water. What, what was your favorite assignment? Well, I, you know, my first assignment, I think, which was the USS America, which was a um, <clears throat> Kitty Hawk class aircraft carrier. Um, the America... Uh, being what it was, and of course, I didn't fully really appreciate it until after I got off of her. But um, the America was unique in the sense that it was the last ship that President Kennedy actually had a hand in naming um, before he was assassinated. And um, the America was, I think, originally designed, it was supposed to be a nuclear ship, and then they changed it. Um, they changed the, the, um, the concept of it uh, during the design phase. So they made it a conventionally powered carrier. Um, and then, um, you know, and that experience, uh, truthfully, I mean, I was young, uh, you know, and, and seeing the world for the first time, uh, you know, getting to see a lot of places that um, I never thought I would have been able to see uh, growing up in Burlington, Massachusetts, where I grew up. Um, you know, I, I, I just wanted to, to, uh, to experience the, a lot of these things. And so, uh, the Navy really gave me that opportunity to be able to do that, um, to work with a lot of great people, um, to see a lot of places and, uh, to meet, meet some fascinating people, um, in Europe and, and, and Africa and the Middle East and, and, um, and a lot of other places. So I, I can, I can't. You know, I can't encourage people enough that if you think about it and if you have the opportunity, um, you should consider doing the service, even right. if you don't make it a career. Even You don't have to make it a career if it's not for you. But I, I often tell people, you know, you should, I encourage them to at least try it, at least do one uh, enlistment and see if you like it, number one. But you, you'll never regret it. Um, I don't know too many people that I've spoken to today, uh, especially that have ever said, um, I regretted going into the service. As a matter of fact, I, I meet a lot of guys my age who have said, I wish I had stayed in. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I I'm, so. I'm, I've been one of those, Dave. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was, um, you know, and. You know, after uh, once uh, 9-11 hit, of course, uh, the op tempo changed for everybody. Um, and soon we were busy with with uh, mobilizing people and, and deploying people to all different parts of the world um, and just filling in the gaps in a number of places between Afghanistan and Iraq and, and still trying to cover a lot of, um, you know, military responsibilities around the world, even in the Philippines and Japan and, and just a variety of other places. So, um, you know, recruitment was, was on a high up tempo in those years. Of course, uh, post 9-11 uh, was one of those eras where we had more people wanting to join uh, than we had slots, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, December 8th, 1941, right? Um, after uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, um, people were signing up in uh, by the hundreds of thousands. And so post 9-11 uh, was kind of the same way. Uh, the difference, though, is that we were all volunteer force in, the, uh, in these years. And so it was uh, kind of a different process. But nevertheless, um, it was good to see that people were wanting to, to do something um, and to contribute. So, 
you know, the profile and how the military uh, was positioned in those years post 9-11, I think, is a little bit different. Um, but the one thing I do, uh, I will say is that, um, you know, we still are in an era where people are very appreciative of military service, which thankfully, uh, you know, hasn't changed, has the pendulum has not swung in the other direction on that one. And um, I think uh, because of that, we have a lot of great folks out there that want to help the veteran population and the veteran community, um, such as yourself and, and Phil, you know, Phil's uh, swim of the mission, of course, is, is uh, renowned and they've done uh, just an unbelievable uh, job in raising money for uh, just a whole bunch of, of uh, services out there uh, for, for veterans. And so, and Dave, you know, your, your work in, uh, as uh, in HUD and, and subsequent to that uh, for the homeless veterans uh, is, uh, is also uh, notable. So, you know, we we're I'm very fortunate to live in a state um, that uh, that has so many different um, volunteers and resources and people out there just wanting to help. Um, it just makes our state one of those places that when somebody retires or somebody is looking to leave the service and find a place to live, you know, New Hampshire is on the top of the list. And uh, I think that's a great, a great and a most notable, um, you know, uh, thing to have for a state. So I'm, I'm very proud to, to be a part of it. Hey, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the kind words on some of the mission and agree. Dave Tilly's done so much for our veterans and, and as of you. Um, but I want to still just we're going to talk in a little bit about, you know, what you've done outside your Navy career. But you had such a long and terrific career. I just want to ask you a few more questions about your career. So sure. as you as you reflect on the entirety of your career, which, which spanned a, a long time, love to hear some. You know, we always like to ask about some highlights and some lowlights, you know, just to help our listeners understand a little bit more about what it's like to be in the Navy. And so if you have any stories stories or anecdotes you'd like to share with us. Maybe we can start with some highlights as you look back uh, on the entirety of your career. You know, what, what is, what are some moments in time that, that, you know, you just feel really good about? Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I think uh, in the beginning, <laughs> you know, the, the highlights is always be, uh, you know, coming home from a deployment. Um, anybody who's ever been deployed can appreciate um, the feeling that they get, you know, just coming home, um, the pride, uh, goes along with that, but it's that sense of, of, um, you know, having completed a, a particular mission or, um, you know, a deployment, if you will, and, uh, for whatever length of time, and just it, being able to get home and get back to some sense of normalcy with your family, with your friends, um, you know, reacclimate yourself to the United States, um, and, uh, you know, just try to get your feet back firmly on the ground, if you will. So that's always been a highlight for me. Every time I returned off a deployment, that's, uh, that was always, um, a big deal, uh, for myself and, and, um, you know, even though I fully appreciated the adventures that um, that the Navy certainly presents itself and in, in uh, being able to travel a lot of different places. But um, there's uh, as they say, there's no place like home. Um, so that's always a big thing. Um, the other issue is that the other thing for me personally 
um, is when I when I got my commission. Um, that was something that uh, was a personal goal of mine. Uh, was something that I I wanted to do, and and um, I was very pleased and um, um, happy that I had a cadre of officers that I was working for at the time. Um, that were very supportive of me um, getting my commission. And, and um, my former CEO, Captain Bill Mauser, uh, who I routinely keep in touch with even to this day, um, was the one that signed the paperwork so that I could get my uh, so that I could get my commission um, in 1990. And I was, you know, like I said, it's it's um, I think the success in anyone's career um, is partially due to those that you are serving with. Um, and in some cases, those you are serving for. Um, and uh, it matters uh, when you have good leaders, strong leaders, people that believe in you, people that believe in what you're capable of. Um, it makes a big difference. And so in my career, um, both as a senior enlisted and a uh, uh, subsequently, as a as a commander, was to um, was to pay that forward, and to do the same thing that um, that I learned from the officers that mentored me uh, in the early years, and so um, I continue to do that um, even to this day. Um, I'm currently the Navy Ombudsman for um, the the Navy Operations uh, Support Center here in Manchester. Um, I picked up that job the day I retired in 2015. And, um, and I still do it to this day. And it's, it not only does it keep me plugged in with the Navy, but it allows me to give back to the Navy families and to help out the sailors today who may need assistance or their families might need help while they're deployed. So it's, um, it's a way for me to give back, uh, to my Navy family. Um, and you know, I've, I've been very happy to be able to do that. Um, as far as the, the, the other highlights and lowlights, I guess, um, in 2000, when the DOD started the Navy Funeral Honors Program, um, we pretty much jumped on board on that very quickly here uh, because it was one of the first times that DOD gave a direct mission to the reserve force. Um, so Navy, Marine Corps Reserve and the National Guard, both the Army and the Air Force National Guard, were tasked directly by DOD to take on this mission. Um, to provide funeral honors for all honorably discharged veterans uh, in every state of the union. So it was a large undertaking in that we had to stand up this program very quickly. Um, a lot of people were looking for that kind of service. The families were looking for that kind of service. And when they heard that it was being done, um, we were getting requests almost immediately before our folks were even trained, uh, we were getting requests. So we stood that program up very quickly. I'm, I'm proud to say I was I was with it from the very beginning um, here in New Hampshire. Um, so I was the OIC for the Navy Funeral Honor Guard here for 15 years before I retired. Um, so much of the program's formation and training and, and uh, up and down the East Coast, as well as uh, the Mid-Atlantic, um, I had my my uh, my thumbprint on. So um, it was um, it was a not really a duty for me. It was really more of an honor um, to be able to um, be that last imagery, if you will, for the families of um, veterans that um, served our country and and uh, were now being uh, interred at, at various cemeteries around New England and, of course, our own beautiful cemetery up in Boston. Um, so 
Um, I, um, I started that in 2000 and when I retired, I had about 1200, uh, services that I had performed personally, um, and had the opportunity to do all different services, not only the Navy, but, uh, Marine Corps, Army, Air Force. Uh, we worked with all the funeral honor guards here in the state of New Hampshire. And, and again, I, I, you know, I go back to that, that, uh, state of New Hampshire concept, uh, you know, back when, uh, former excuse me, Adjutant General, uh, General Blair basically coined the phrase Fort New Hampshire. Um, the concept was is that all services in New Hampshire would be uh, would be welcome uh, for any services that are required of them, no matter what. So it didn't matter which uniform you wore. Um, we all helped each other. And so I took that same mantra um, in the funeral honor program. And so we routinely went out and helped the other services, even though um, <laughs> even though our, our parent command uh didn't necessarily always know about it. <laughs> Sometimes we did it on uh, off the books, if you will. But um, but we did it nonetheless because uh, you know we all believe the same thing, and that no veteran who was entitled a uh, a final service, a final honors, should ever be denied. And uh, we made it our our mission to make sure that we had not missed anyone uh, who requested a military honors funeral. So that was a big highlight for me. It was, um, I was very proud of that program, um, having been part of standing it up and, um, and seeing it through to, um, uh, to a very high level of performance, um, here in the state of New Hampshire. And, you know, I was very proud of it, but, um, along with that, that program, uh, there were some lows as well. And unfortunately in, um, 2009, we had a gentleman, Petty officer who was uh, stationed with us at Moss Manchester, who was our funeral honors coordinator. Young kid came out of the Coast Guard, wanted to join the Navy, really got his footing uh, in the Navy and was was having a heck of a time with it. Uh, just loving life. And so um, he was doing a great job for us. Young, young family man, four kids. Um, and um, the day before uh, Mother's Day. I got a call that evening from the command chief and he called me and basically said, um, I got some bad news. And I said, okay. And he said, well, he said, I wanted to tell you that, uh, James, uh, was killed tonight. And I said, oh, that was that phone call you just didn't want to get. And, um, you know, so he basically told me what he knew. Um, I spoke to the CEO of the center after that and told him that, um, I would, be more than happy to take over as Keiko for them, casualty assistance officer, and and uh, which I did. And um, you know, I I um, got James's family through uh, some very difficult times. Uh, you know, James was a young man; he wasn't uh, he wasn't very old when he passed away. And and um, you know, he had four young kids. And the irony of the thing really was um, um, two months prior. Um, there was a um, Marine, uh, Dave, you probably know Stephanie Ouellette, her brother, Michael, yeah. um, mm -hmm. was killed in Afghanistan. And Michael was buried and, at um, Boscoen, and he was a classmate of James's. So when James found out that Michael was coming here, he basically said, sir, would you mind if, if we go to the funeral together and I said no not at all absolutely we'll, we'll go 
so we went and, and, you know, both James and I paid our respects, obviously, to the family while we were there. And um, it, I just you just don't expect, of course, that two months later, um, I ended up burying James, you know, literally in the next row um, to Michael. So, you know, it's just one of those things in life that um, you, you don't really anticipate it. But um, in in doing that job uh, and performing those tasks, it's it's one of the things that um, you have to you have to just kind of suck it up and do it. I know a lot of people have asked me, I don't know how you can do that with with a straight face and, and not break down. And, you know, it's one of those things where I have my moments, you know, I have my private time. Um, I never did it. I never broke down in front of a family ever. And I think that's important um, that they see some stability uh, and they see some strength um, in the individuals that are there to support them. Um, and that, that was that was part of what we we did to serve that family, and so it was a very big deal uh, to train people to make sure that they understood that you're there for a reason. Um, and if it's not something that you think you can do uh, emotionally, then please let me know. Uh, we'll get somebody else. But you know, it was very crucial that um, that people um, you know take that take that role very seriously. And um, I must say, it, it's as I said, in 15 years, it's, it's been a, uh, a huge success, uh, in my view. And, um, I'm very proud of that, that aspect of my service. That's, um, Dave, I, um, you, you know, you know, when you, when you serve, there are those, um, times that whether you're called potentially and going on a deployment and the gravitas of the, um, oath you took to serve comes in full um, perspective that you're, you know, serving and, and uh, putting your life in the line and, and uh, whether it's uh, training exercises or active duty service, when uh, you witness someone through your service, that's fallen. Uh, I, I had that, uh, I, I was called for funeral duty when I was, active uh duty and it it was it profoundly impacted me you want to do everything absolutely right for the family right. have the flags presented absolutely perfectly you don't you know and um and being with those families and also um experiencing you know what they're going through mourning and and everyone's different faith experiences through those services so uh, I, th I thank you for that and, uh, and applaud, uh, applaud your work there. And um, I know we, we, we could go on and on, even on your active duty service, but you've done since your service. When, when did you end up uh, uh, deciding to retire, depart, and, and what was next in your life? <laughs> well, I, I truthfully, Dave, I aged out. <laughs> my, my wife is my wife is one to tell people uh, uh, quite readily, I might add that, you know, if he was if he was still young enough, he would be doing it today still. <laughs> and, she's, and she's not wrong. Um, uh, truthfully, I, I can tell you, I um, my childhood was was uh, different, um, to say the least. I was adopted 
when I was young and um, the family that I was in was um, challenging, I'll say the least. And so the Navy uh, really gave me an opportunity to uh, create a different life for myself, uh, a life of opportunity, but also uh, a, a family. Um, so I treated um, really the service like a family, and I, I still do to this day. So um, shortly after Desert Storm, um, I had I had signed on with um, a group called the Reserve Officers Association of the United States, which uh, recently has just changed their name to the Reserve Organization of America, because now they've included um, enlisted uh, members as well as officers in their roles. Um, but uh, when I joined the ROA, uh, you know, back in the 90s, uh, early 90s, that was kind of the beginning of my my interest, I guess, in serving the veteran community. And so when I started there, I was I was really more engaged in the political aspect of things. Uh, I was working a lot with uh, Senator Smith, as you know, um, you know, Bob was yeah, uh, when we first met. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And and Bob is still a good friend to this day. Um, I was um, honored to have him at my retirement. Uh, both he and Mary Jo came up and and uh, came to my retirement. So, you know, it's it's um, and working with some of those folks in, in D.C. on legislation um, that affected veterans, uh, you know, across the country was uh, was a real eye opener for me. Uh, it gave me uh, a chance to to learn a lot about the process, to learn uh, some of the do's and don'ts, I guess. And um, and <laughs> as you know, Dave, deal with some of the frustrations of not being successful all the time um, and realizing that uh, sometimes you, you have to take a step back, take a new perspective on things and then go at it again the following year. Um, so that never changes. And uh, to this day, you know, that, that that's how it works in both on a national level and here in, in New Hampshire. So that's where I started um, doing my work with veterans and, and um, it segued into uh, helping the 59th commander of um, old Ironsides raise money for the sales so that uh, she could sail for her 200th anniversary. I was very proud of that. Um, and uh, having been commissioned on on her, I, I felt an obligation to at least help in some way uh, in uh, in get her her, her new sales. Um, and then after that, it was uh, uh, talking with Ken Leidner, you know, back in the late 90s, we were discussing uh, almost on a regular basis every month about bringing some kind of, of veteran um, advocacy group, group back. They had one in the early 90s that was a precursor to SVAC, uh, which is a state veterans advisory committee. And um but it there was a lot of I guess disagreement and and things of that nature in those days, and it, the group just kind of petered out after a while. So when Ken discussed the idea of bringing it back and resurging it, I said, you know, I said, you know, that's a great idea, but let's uh, let's pull all the the major groups together and see if we can't get people to to show some interest in it. So while he was busy discussing that with the big three, which I call the American Legion, VFW, DAV, um, there were a lot of smaller organizations out there that were underrepresented. So I formed a group called the Military Coalition, New Hampshire Military Coalition, and it was made up of 
smaller groups or smaller uh, military entities like MOAA, uh, which is not so small anymore, of course, but uh, myself, there was uh, the Navy Reserve Association. There was a whole bunch of different smaller groups um, that uh, we formed a committee and basically kind of did the same thing that SVAC is doing today. But when Ken finally came up and said, you know, we're going to do it, we're going to form it, uh, we're going to put it back together. And this was in 2001. I said, well, Ken, you know, it makes no sense in trying to have your group trying to pull things together when I've already got a whole bunch of people over here. Let's merge them together. I'll dissolve the military coalition and we'll put everything into SVAC. And that's what we did. So in 2001, uh, SVAC was officially relaunched. Um, and uh, Ken and myself and uh, Dennis Viola and, and uh, Griff Delanus and a whole bunch of those folks all pulled it together um, at the very beginning. And I think we started with 10 organizations uh, at that time. And now we're up to... Um, Jeez, uh, uh, we're up to almost twenty now. Well, it's it's a tremendous organization too. I mean, really advancing both veterans and our military service members. You've also got the, uh, you know, the active the the guard represented. You've got the congressional delegation represented, the governor's office, um, and then really uh, working and collaborating together to advance veterans. And I know. Phil would swim with a mission. He's been uh, doing the same. I mean, recently had a uh, not not too long ago a uh, big big gathering at the um, uh, at the Courier and uh, with with bringing veterans groups and those advocating for our veterans together. Yeah, and ironic. I work right across the street from there at the diocese. So <laughs> it's uh, and the Liberty House is now right across the street from us uh, as part of Catholic Charities. So you know it, it's um, it, and it's funny that you mentioned that because that that's exactly um, where we're at today in terms of how things have evolved um, from even 20 years ago to where we are now. And and um, you know the interesting thing about New Hampshire is that we're very diverse in in where our services come from. We're a very small state, uh, fiscally frugal, uh, I guess, as uh, some people would would observe. But having said that, it's it, it it does rely on the fact that our community based services now become a more important aspect of the partnership of serving veterans in our community, meaning that we don't necessarily rely on state entities or federal government entities uh, to provide all of the services for veterans here because the all in all honesty I've always been a big believer that services to veterans has never been one size fits all ever um, you know every veteran is different um, sometimes their needs are different um, and certainly in many cases uh, when a veteran does seek help it's usually for more than one issue. Um, you know, it's not necessarily about, for example, just mental health. It might be mental health and homelessness, for example, or it might right. be, you know, drug addiction and something else. It might be, uh, you know, counseling or, or having uh, domestic issues and, and, uh, and being able to sustain a job. So there's a number of, of things that, that come into play here. And the beauty of, of um, what we offer, I think, in the state of New Hampshire is, uh, if you recall, Dave, we had a program uh, not too long ago when Joe Moncher was was championing it um, called um, Ask the Question. 
and mm-hmm. asked the question, really, the concept behind it was um, there was no wrong door <laughs> um, that a veteran could actually enter and not get some kind of answer for the questions they were asked. Um, so the idea at the beginning was to train um, all these commercial-based services and all these civilian-based services on on how to actually approach a veteran and ask them the right questions so that they could get the services that they need, even if they were not the ones to provide it, to actually engage them and get them into a program or referral to a place where they could actually get the help that they needed uh, without going through too many steps. Um, And I think you know, that's continued uh, even today as we continue to educate more and more of our civilian based uh, services out there to provide that kind of help. And the beauty, uh, you know, I love the fact that every almost every SFAC meeting that we've ever had over the years, we've had different people come in and present their ideas and their and their organization and what they do. And, and, you know, Phil, you may have heard, you know, you, you're obviously familiar with Camp Resilience um, and a few of those uh, organizations that you're, you know, you've, you've been involved with. Those folks have been in front of us for over the years and, and presented what they do and how they help veterans. And, and uh, it still never ceases to amaze me as to how many different people are out there just doing things that, um, mm-hmm. that are filling a gap and meeting a need. And, and uh, that's I think that's the beautiful aspect of um, of being here in New Hampshire and being able to serve veterans is that um, I, I don't I don't have to spend a lot of time finding an answer to a veteran. When I get a question, um, I can usually get an answer within a phone call or two. And I think that's I think that's great. And personally, I think it's awesome. Uh, Dave, there's so much in there that you said. I just want to try to focus on a couple things. Uh, and you know, and uh, you know, I appreciate the nice things you said about some of the mission. We we're only five years old, and we have been able to give uh, about seven million dollars now to veteran service organizations. And the whole reason we created some of the mission was to continue to strengthen you know, our veteran service community, just sort of focus on that aspect. Uh, so in turn, we can serve serve our veterans, right? Right. Uh, and in doing that in New Hampshire, um, I'm pretty sure we've given money to every uh, every veteran service organization we can find. And so we, we're almost in this unique position where we're the only ones that know how much money each of them raise, what they all do, how many veterans they serve. And, and we do see gaps, you know, when we put all the puzzle pieces together, we see gaps and we've been trying to fill those gaps uh, ourselves, you know, and some of the things are obvious, you know, we all know that it would be good if we had better coordination amongst the various organizations, which is why we started bringing them all together to talk to each other uh, in one place. You know, we all sort of struggle with, you know, how do veterans find help? You know, when they're looking for help, a lot of veterans obviously not going to ask for help. Right. Uh, but but when they finally do, you know, where do they find it? And how do they find their way, whether it's the VA or to a camp resilience or to the Liberty House or wherever they go, veterans count. Um, you know, and there, there's so many pieces to this and, and we're working through all of it. But from where you're sitting with all of your experience and everything you've done, love to hear sort of like here we are in 2022. 
you know, what do you view right now as the biggest challenges for our veterans in New Hampshire? Uh, you know, and it'd be helpful to hear your thoughts so that the rest of us can continue to sort of try to dig in and help, you know, where, where we think we can be the most help, you know, but so, so we, we, we're like currently, and I'm sure this has evolved over time in your experience, but like right now, what are you seeing as the biggest challenges in our community here for veterans? Yeah. I, you know, Phil, that's, that's a good point. You really touched on something that, that um, I, um, it has been a, I guess, a, a focal point for me over the years. And that's been, you're absolutely right, the gaps in the coordination of services. It's it's the one double edge of that coin, I guess, that um, when you look at it, you say, gee, we've got all these folks up here that are really doing some great things for veterans and they're offering services and everything else. But then when you look at it, sometimes we've got a lot of a lot of that going on. And the question is, is how do you coordinate that? How do you pull it all together and make it easy and make it simple? for veterans to actually um, get access um, to services, because it isn't just about gaining access, it's about gaining access to the right services, what they actually need. Um, And that, uh, unfortunately, has been a challenge from the very beginning. you know, I worked with DHHS a few years back to try and streamline ServiceLink um, because the one thing ServiceLink didn't have at the time is they had nothing on their um, their list of services in the state of New Hampshire that specifically highlighted veterans. There was no way uh, for a veteran to go in there and start looking at the database of services and realize, well, is is this service for me or not? So we came up with the idea of actually um, um, highlighting services that were provided specifically for veterans. So now when if if a veteran or any service officer, for example, is looking for um, state based services or community based services out there that are part of the service link database, they can go in and they can just click a button that says, you know, veteran and basically anything within that community, that county. Um, that is a direct uh, veteran service will come up right away instead of having them try to distill down time, you know, screen after screen after screen and just get frustrated. So it was a, it was an initial endeavor to try to make things as simple um, and as easy as possible, not only for the veterans themselves, but also for those that are helping them and supporting them. So I, I'm with you on that. And I, I agree with you hundred percent that um, it, although we've made uh, some improvements. Um, we still have some work to do. Um, so in today's world and currently, uh, my particular view is I still think that we have uh, some challenges with mental health uh, with the veterans, even though we do have quite a bit of service out there, um, both in the community and the VA, um, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services. There are a number of avenues, if you will, um, where uh, veterans can get, um, you know, mental health support and and those types of services. But, you know, as you alluded to earlier on, veterans don't always ask for help. And when they do, uh, in my experience, it's usually been with other veterans. Um, I feel that the vet to vet communication is extremely important. Um, And it's one in which, that conversation that you hold with another veteran um, about their experience in service or what they're going through right now and everything else, there is a always a level of understanding that another veteran will just bring to the table um, so that 
you know, a veteran who is in crisis or is in need doesn't have to sit there and try to explain themselves um, and get frustrated because they're they're not really making their point or they're not really getting the answers that they're seeking. And so I think, um, you know, putting veterans into positions that um, allow them to be able to communicate at the front line with veterans that are in crisis and veterans that need help, I think is a crucial part of the success, I think, that we would have going forward and going downrange um, to improve these programs to make them better um, than what they currently are. Um, it's not taking away from any efforts that are being made by people that are that are there now or in positions now that are trying desperately hard to help veterans. But, um, you know, I'll take the VA as an example. You know, the VA, um, when I was on the task force, um, to uh, fix the VA here in Manchester back in 2017, um, the secretary had asked me to co-chair that task force, and I I was more than happy to do so. Um, but we had some very unique challenges. One is that the building had just gotten flooded. Um, and created millions of dollars in damage. But uh, the other aspect, of course, is that um, they um, they had gotten a black eye from an expose at the Boston Globe that uh, really did not paint a positive light for uh, veteran care at the VA. And so th- that was a huge undertaking for them to actually turn that facility around as quickly as they did. However, you know, having done all that, the challenge for them still is getting um, the right people in getting the right staff in um, and having all those people that are there um, to be the front facing um, essentially image, if you will, for veterans. So when they walk through that door, they feel confident that they're going to get the care that they need and that they want. Um, And I think that needs to carry through with some of the other services that we provide here in the state. So, you know, we have a little we still have more work to do. And I think part of that is is to maintain communications Um, and certainly through venues like this and through um, SVAC, through all the different organizations that we have. We need to still communicate with each other. We need to figure out where those gaps are. And um, we need to find out if there are other organizations that can actually fill those gaps. So, um, you know, that's that's crucially important going forward. Yeah. Dave, thank you. And, you know, we're grateful to have leaders like you, you know, in the veteran community uh, that understand it right and are working hard. And um, one of the you know, I, I didn't get the opportunity to serve, but. You know, being, you know, this, we, we tell people all the time, this is our service, you know, and, and getting to meet folks like you and, and Dave Tilly and others really is a blessing for us, you know, honestly. And uh, so can't thank you enough for everything you're doing. It's one veteran at a time, right? And uh, whatever it takes, right? It is. Yeah, and I feel I fully appreciate everything that you're doing, Phil. And, you know, having talked to, to Alex Ray, uh, you know, Alex is, in the same boat, you know, yeah. he didn't serve either, but the things that he's doing in the veteran community too, uh, and in the community in general, I mean, it, it's huge. It makes a yes. big difference. And so, um, you know, it's, it, we appreciate it. That's, that's, that's the best way I can put it is that um, we do fully appreciate it, even though we may not always say so we do. Oh, absolutely. Dave, if, um, you, you know, you mentioned a, a lot of uh, ways that uh, veterans may be able to uh, access 
assistance. Are there particular websites or links that you recommend for our podcast listeners that if, if there's a, um, you know, veteran wanting to uh, reach out and, and find what services may be available to them? Yeah, you know, Dave, that's a good question. And it's one in which um, we've been we've been fighting the good fight for quite a while. And, and um, I can tell you that ServiceLink, the ServiceLink project was really designed to, to kind of do that and to fill that gap. And we were hoping that it would be a one stop shop, if you will. Um, but unfortunately, because of budgetary situations, uh, we weren't able to, to bring it to the full fruition. I would have liked to have seen it, but it certainly head and shoulders better than where it was. And so uh, I would still say ServiceLink is a good resource, uh, an opportunity to have a first cut, if you will, at looking at services in the state. Um, and they can find it on the state website. If they go to newhampshire.gov and they just do uh, a search for ServiceLink or they can actually find the link on uh, called ServiceLink there, um, they can, it's, it's a you know, it's a, a database search. Um, they can put in their zip code um, or their community. And basically by doing so and checking off the veterans box, it'll give them pretty much a list of all the veteran services um, that are available to them right within their own community and within driving distance, for example. Um, and that's that's also a crucial part of this is making sure that the services that some of these vets get um, are going to be readily available to them because, as we know, some of them don't drive. Um, you know, the older vets, of course, um, have difficulty sometimes in getting transportation to uh, to appointments and things of that nature. So we have to be cognizant of that as well. Uh, we're serving a very, very broad community here in the state of New Hampshire in that we have a lot of vets, a uh, good number of vets that are still in their, their late 80s and early 90s. You know, our World War II guys, our Korean War vets. Um, and right behind them are the Vietnam War vets, uh, you know, that are coming in, uh, coming into their zone. And, and um, as as they age, um, their requirement for services, although might vary a little bit, um, tend to increase. You know, you tend to see a lot more doctor's appointments as as we can all attest to as we get older. We're visiting the doctor a lot more often. And uh, it's it's no different for veterans. Um, they're faced with the same challenges. Um, the other thing that that, you know, uh, I bring to attention now is the fact that in this COVID, in this era of covid, um, the one thing that we we tend to forget sometimes is that veterans who are already under heavy stress and in crisis um, are having to deal with that now in a in an era where um, um, employment shortages and you know supply chain shortages and all of these these caveats, if you will, and and um, you know, and walls, if you will, that get thrown up in front of them to avail themselves of some of these services um, will frustrate them and, and make it difficult for them to get what they need. So we have to be aware of that, too, and realize that um, that these are challenging times, not just for for the civilian population, but uh, most especially for some of the veteran population as well, who are already in many cases dealing with the stresses of PTSD and, and uh, things of that nature. So um, having the, this whole COVID scenario doesn't certainly doesn't help. Um, so we want to get them, you know, get them into uh, places like that as much as possible. The other uh, recommendation, of course, is Bill Goudreau. 
Um, he is a director of the Veteran Service Office, which is part of the new Department of Military and Veteran Services here in the state of New Hampshire um, under General Michaelides. Uh, Bill, great guy, Navy vet, um, retired Navy submariner, um, has done a marvelous job over there of squaring the office away. Uh, and um, and those guys, too, try their best um, to be that first contact uh, for veterans that are needing services and um, and, uh, and getting access to uh, their BA benefits. So, you know, there's uh, there's that, too. Dave, thank you. Those those are great suggestions. Much appreciated. Um, I'll also note uh, for for veterans looking specifically for New Hampshire Veterans Service Organizations, they are all listed at Swim of the Mission on our website. You can just go to swam.org under Veterans Services. They're all there as well. And um, also give a shout out to Homeland Heroes Foundation, of course, right. uh, which offers an array of supportive services that help fill in some of the gaps, you know, Dave, that you were mentioning, yep. uh, which folks can just go to foundation.org uh, and uh, get the information there. But Dave Kenny, really uh, an honor and a pleasure to spend this time with you. Uh, this is a great podcast. And um I wanted to learn more about what it's like to live on a on a on a aircraft carrier. So maybe we'll have to have you back. Uh, we could probably spend four to five minutes on that, but really, I can't thank you enough. I've got some sea stories, but I'm not sure. I don't know if I can tell them all on a podcast. Right? I may have to filter them a little bit. Yeah. No. No. For sure. And I, let me just correct the. It's HomelandHeroesFoundation.org. But Dave Tilley, I give you the last word. Oh, Dave, Dave, we can't thank you enough for being, joining us on the podcast on Homeland Heroes Salute. And thank you so much for joining us and for all you do for our veterans. I really appreciate the opportunity, uh, Phil and Dave. It's, uh, it's certainly been an honor for me to be here with you this evening. And, um, you know, um, I like I said, I fully appreciate the work that uh, that both of you gentlemen do uh, for veterans out there. And, and uh, you know, I think you, you both know that when we go out there and we do all the work that we do, um, we tend to see the same faces a lot. And it's because those folks are committed to doing what they're what they're doing best, which is to serve veterans. And I think um, it, you can't get much more honored than that to uh, to be and counted among those folks. And so I'm certainly honored to be counted among you as well. Well, thank you. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it, Dave. This podcast is a co-production brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need and Dairy Cam, who believes a better world starts with a connected community. To learn more, visit homelandheroesfoundation.org and dairycam.org. Follow the Homeland Heroes Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for listening, and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Heroes Salute wherever you listen to podcasts. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any of the uniformed services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, Swim with a Mission, Harbor Care, Veterans First, or any other organization.